Really appreciated the word we've already heard this morning, and Brother Robert talked to us about a rest and how we can come to a throne of grace, and as he was saying that, I thought, you know, when he talked about mercy and grace, that's usually the two excuses we use most often not to come to the throne of grace is, well, I'm guilty. Why would God listen to me? Well, there's mercy for those who are guilty, and then the other reason we would say, well, I'm just not worthy. I, I, there's no way that God would listen to me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not worthy to come. Well, there's grace also for us to come, uh, and I'm glad that we understand um, doctrine that teaches us that it's not that you get yourself worthy or that you make a move towards God, but that we really believe that there's mercy and grace because it's all of God, um, and that's that's how you have that kind of rest. And so thankful for doctrine that we can rest in and not have to worry about, you know, earning our salvation and, and uh, doing things that are going to get us or, or, or even, you know, simplifying it this much that it's all based on my decision. I was listening to some gospel music this morning. It's a, it's a great old hymn in some ways, but it has one line that just, it just rubs me the wrong way every time. He says, uh, it's called Haven of Rest. And, and so he's singing, he says, you know, I'm, I'm coming up and I hear the Savior's sweet voice saying, make me your choice. And then I entered the haven of rest. Well, you know, that kind of rest, I wouldn't have any rest <laughs> because uh, I had to choose to go in the harbor, and I know, I know myself too well to know that I would have sailed right on past it. But that's not how it goes at all. Um, we're drawn into the haven of rest by the Lord. Uh, it's not a choice that we make. So thankful for what we've heard so far now we want to turn our attention to romans chapter 15 romans chapter 15 you say wait a minute you skipped 13 chapters well you know i've already done a little bit out of romans 15 and i just decided while this was fresh on my mind this is um, our theme for our school this year so i've been studying this and doing it in some chapels and things like that i also uh, preached on this text at the meeting in olive branch so um we're going to Read Romans 15, 1 through 7, and we're going to zero in this morning on verses 1 through 3 of Romans 15. And, and so I'll make a deal with you when we get back to this later on in our study. We'll, we'll take it as a big whole chunk, and, and we'll move through it pretty quickly. All right, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So as we begin to look at this passage and, and to discuss exactly what Paul means when he says that the strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, we must first really understand the context in which Paul makes this statement. This is one of those passages 
where if you don't go back and get the context, you'll really get a lot of things wrong. Um, chapter 14 is, is 100% relevant to what Paul is saying in the first part of chapter 15. It's a good time to remind us that you know, sometimes the chapter and verses kind of throw us off. That's there for our study. It's there for us to be able to, it'd be really hard if we just had the whole letter of Romans and I said, okay, I want y'all to go to paragraph 10, you know, that would be really difficult. So that's, that, those are there just for us to be able to, to study and know where to go to read. But really, it's all one letter. So as Paul's thoughts in Romans 14 flow into Romans 15, it's really important for us to understand kind of the basic premise of what he's saying in Romans 14 so we can really unpack chapter 15 verses 1 through 3. So I want to go back. I'm not going to read the whole chapter of Romans 14, but I'll read you a few verses there that give us kind of the context of what it is we want to talk about, which is the strong uh, bearing the infirmities of the weak. So in Romans 14 and verse 13, he says this, Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. So what an interesting text. There's, there's really two major examples that Paul uses in Romans 14 to talk about his larger point, and that's really the celebration of holy days, particular days, and the eating or restraining from eating of certain foods. So, as you can probably tell, just by looking at me, I 100% enjoy the freedom we have in Christ to eat a lot of different things. <laughs> That's not a problem for me, right? Um, I, I, I'm not uh, caught up in the legalism of certain foods we can eat and certain foods we're not. You're probably not either. That's not an issue that we have a lot today, right? Probably not really with holy days either. I think there's a couple of examples maybe. You know, some people disagree over how you should celebrate certain days or certain things. But really, not as much of an issue for us today either. But remember, those are just the examples that Paul's using with his audience here uh, in the Roman letter. But in this day, uh, there were those who, they really had a hard time of letting go of the legalism of the past, uh, of of keeping the, the rules and observing all the things that they had to observe in the Old Testament in the law service. They were young in the faith. They still kept the holy days. They wouldn't eat certain things. And Paul calls them weak in our passage. That's who he's describing as those who are weak in the faith. So before I go any further, I just want to recognize this for a minute. Paul says then, we can kind of Assume from that that we can just recognize that Paul is saying that religion that is based in rule following and the formalities of holy days and, and all of these things, that, that that is weak faith. I think that's really interesting just to zoom out a minute and, and understand because I think sometimes we would view that exactly the opposite way. 
Have you ever seen a group of Christians get in a holier-than-thou contest? Have you? I mean, it's pretty obvious. It happens a lot. You know, so, well, I don't do that, and they do, so that makes me on a little different plane than them. You know, I, I, I take that literally, and, and they don't, or, or whatever it might be. Now, this is a good place for me to remind you that what we're talking about here are indifferent things. These are things that it was not necessarily wrong for them to abstain from eating these things, right? Uh, but it was causing some disturbance between the two. They, they were saying, man, if you do this, you're wrong. So uh, that's what the issue is. So these are indifferent things that have been made into things that are not indifferent. I think that, that topic uh, couldn't be more timely for us today. So in other words, these are things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say, yes, black and white, right or wrong, whatever. However, they are important if we make them that way. If we make them that way, that makes us weak in the faith. That's what Paul says. Uh, so don't shoot the messenger. That's what Paul is saying here to us in Romans 14. Now, let's get into our text in Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. So our first point this morning is the strong and the weak. The strong and the weak. So we've got to define who it is that we're talking about in these categories. Paul divides all believers into two categories. And I need, right from the very beginning, we're going to go ahead and get this straight. Every one of these are believers in Christ. These are Christians. Both the strong and the weak, they're both Christians. So it's not, well, there's the Christians and then there's the people who are not quite there yet. That's not what Paul is saying. He says they're both believers, but some are strong, some are weak. So I would say 100% that there are men and women in this room right now that I would 100% without any doubts put in the strong category. All right? So I want to get this over with too. Don't, don't let yourself have some kind of a false humility this morning and say, well, I could never say that I'm strong in the faith because I just, that would not be humble. And no, Paul says, we that are strong. There are those that are strong, and we're going to describe what that is, and you can just be honest with yourself. <laughs> I'm not going to label anybody this morning. Um, but, but there are those that are strong, and there are those that are weak. So I, I know that there's men and women in this room that I would put in the category of strong. And if, you, if you're on the borderline, you should want to be in there too. You should want to be in that category. I thought about it this way. If there's a choice of two categories of Christians and one is strong and it includes the Apostle Paul and then there's another category that's called weak and it doesn't include the Apostle Paul, that's a pretty easy choice for me. I want to be in the group that says, hey, this is, this is a, an easy choice for me. I want to be with those who are called strong. We should have a holy ambition to be the strongest we can in following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a holy thing to be ambitious about. Some ambition's probably wrong, but that's a holy ambition is to be stronger in the faith. And, and when you kind of see what that means, you'll see what that entails, how you get to be strong in the faith. You know... Of course, when we talk about strong, my mind immediately goes to sports. You know, you want to get stronger. You want to get faster. You, able, you want to be able to jump higher. 
You know, you always want to be learning from others about how to make wise decisions and all of those things, even in like your job and in your career. You know, you want to be a good employee. You want to be a strong employee. You want to be able to move up the ladder and get into a higher position. Well, we ought to have that kind of ambition in serving the Lord as well. Um, uh, that subject is infinitely more important than any of those examples and, and trivial pursuits that I just mentioned, careers, sports, all of those things. So then who is it that are the strong? Well, the strong are those that have strong faith and don't lean on the trappings of religion, tradition, or man-made rules and regulations. They understand their freedom in Christ. That's really what Paul is telling us here. So the strong in the faith, Paul says, are those who really recognize their, their freedom in Jesus Christ. So this is going to tie really well with what Brother Robert, and I didn't communicate with him beforehand, just letting you all know, it's going to tie really well with what he taught us this morning about rest. Because the strong Christians are those who can rest. Uh, they have freedom in Christ. There's rest there. Uh, they're not trying to earn it by works. So the two things tie very closely together. They understand their freedom in Christ. They're men and women who understand the Word of God. And I think this is the key phrase specifically for what Paul is saying here. They understand the Word of God, and they can skillfully apply the Word of God in matters of indifference and practical issues that don't pertain to the doctrines of the gospel. That's a, that's a mouthful. Let me, let, me re, let me repeat that, okay? So they, can, they not only just know the Word of God, but they can apply the Word of God in matters of indifference and practical issues that don't pertain to the doctrines of the gospel. So what we're talking about this morning is not the doctrines of the gospel. It's, it's these, these peripheral issues. So there's these peripheral issues that are going on, and Paul says the weak are caught up in those things, and they're making them kind of, for lack of a better term, like a test of fellowship. They're making it an issue in the church. They're saying, you know, we're not eating these things, and you shouldn't be either. And he says the strong have got to know how to react to that. They've got to know how to skillfully apply the word and to skillfully use uh, what the faith that God's given them to bring them along without offending them. That's really what the whole text is about. So John Gill describes the strong this way. He said the, stronger, the strong are the stronger and more knowing part of private Christians uh, that are here intended. They're in the prime of their judgment and exercise of grace. They're strong in Christ and not in themselves, in the grace that is in him out of which they continually receive, who are strong in the grace of faith and are established and settled in the doctrine of it. They have a large and extensive knowledge of the truths of the gospel and among the rest of that of Christian liberty. So especially the, uh, the concept of Christian liberty. I think that's really, really interesting to me. That what Paul says, you want to be really considered strong in the faith, have a real good understanding of Christian liberty. Isn't that interesting? You know, we would think, oh man, be dogmatic about everything and, and, and know everything and be just imposing everything on everyone. And Paul says exactly the opposite of that. You want to show strength in the faith, understand Christian liberty in things that are indifferent. Once again, we're not talking about doctrine. We're not talking about um, the big issues of the gospel. We're talking about in matters of indifference. So that's who the strong are. They can skillfully apply the word of God. Well, that just kind of begs the question, how do you get to be skillful in the word of God? Well, verse a after our text, when you go on into verse 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for what? 
for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. That's the only way to get there. All right? There is a direct correlation between being strong in the faith and how strong you are in the word of God. And that's how you get there is you know the word of God and you're able to apply it. Uh, if, if you've ever been in, in education or if you've ever tried to teach a class or if you've ever even had some little kids and you tried to teach them something, um, for those of you who are professional edu- educators, you'll know this a little more than everybody else. But if you ever want to know something, try to teach it. Try to teach it. You might think you know it, and then when you try to teach it, that's a whole different matter there. You know, all of a sudden, you don't know as much as you thought you knew. Well, that's really kind of what he's saying here. It's not just that they know the word, they're actually able to apply it. And that, that takes a, a little deeper knowledge. So that's who the strong are. Now, who are the weak? Well, the weak, these are the ones that Paul says are weak in the faith. Uh, they're clinging to traditions and things that, though they are indifferent, are no longer, that are indifferent and are no longer binding on Christians that are in Christ Jesus. I'll read you John Gill's on them, too. He said, uh, them that are weak in faith and knowledge, particularly in the knowledge of their freedom from mosaical observances, their infirmities that are mentioned in the scripture are partly their ignorance, mistakes, and errors about things that are indifferent, which they consider and insist on and would impose upon others as necessary and obliging, and partly the peevishness and moroseness which they show, the hard words they give, the rash judgment and rigid censors they pass on their brethren that differ from them. I'm just going to stop there. It's pretty rough, right? I mean, John Gill doesn't pull any punches. He says, these are people who there's a matter of indifference, but they insist on it being their way. It's got to be my way. I'm making it an issue here. It's, it's got to go this way, even though it's a matter of indifference. It's something that, that shouldn't be an issue. They're making it an issue, and they're, they're forcing others to come over to their way of thinking, even though they cannot go to the Scriptures and show and prove uh, that their point is correct. So uh, those are the ones who are weak. And, and I, but I want to mention this, too, before we go too far. I want to go back. I've already said this once. Remember, that was really harsh what he said. They're still children of God. They're still his people. They're still those. Let's go back to uh, chapter 14. What did he say about those that are weak and and those that are causing this issue? Christ died for them. So we better be really careful how we handle this situation. Okay? Because these are people for whom Christ died. So we, we must handle this with you know, very, very much care, and, and we shouldn't go too far with it. Both groups, both the strong and the weak, are worthy of love, care, inclusion, and, and those, um, those that are weak are worthy of our, our greatest concern. It shouldn't be, you know, I guess some, some people, the, the reaction would be, well, just, you know, let's just write them off and, and move on. No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. So then what are we to do in this situation? We have this difference in the church you have the strong and the weak and and the weak then are are insisting on things that are really they they have no authority to insist on is really what it comes down to because all of our authority comes from the word of god so now before we move on we have strong and weak well i just want to remind you every church that's meeting this morning probably has a mixture of this unless they're maybe just a really small church <laughs> but most churches probably have strong 
and weak members within them. So that means that we really need to understand what it is that Paul's trying to teach us here so that we can get along and move forward together uh, and, and do that in the right way. So Paul's answering that question. How do we as strong church members, how do the strong in the church deal with those who are weak? Uh, how, do we, how do we interact together uh, as we go along? So that's really going to be what Paul answers in this passage. So back to our text, point number one was the strong and the weak. So we've defined what we have going on here. Secondly, the second point is going to be bearing, pleasing, and building up. That's the three things Paul's going to say that we do about this situation. Bearing, pleasing, and building up. So how then do we get along together as fellow Christians or fellow church members? How should the strong and the weak interact and before we jump into the details of that, there's, there's an, a really important side note that I think we need to point out here. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to one group, not both. Okay, that's interesting. You may not have kind of thought of that yet. Read the text again, you know, just in your mind. Who is it that Paul is talking to about this issue? He doesn't address the weak. He addresses the strong. Paul addresses the strong. He doesn't, he doesn't come to the weak and say, hey, you guys are a problem and you need to get it together and you need to be, move beyond these hang-ups that you have about food and holidays and you need to get with the program. It's not how Paul addresses it. Paul addresses it to the strong. That's who he puts the responsibility on. He addresses the strong and he says, you need to be part of the solution and in the meantime, there's a certain and a particular way you should treat those who are weak. In the church, a lot of that is in chapter 14. Really, what we're getting in chapter 15 is him summing all of that up, specifically addressing the strong. So he's trying to help the strong understand how to accept people who are young in the faith, who are immature Christians, and are, believe it or not, sometimes difficult to get along with. You know that 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 sometimes happens. Um, conflict. I'll just be honest, and, and most of you know me pretty well. Conflict doesn't really bother me that bad. Um, I, I guess just my personality, and, and especially in what I do for a living, conflict's just part of it. So conflict doesn't bother me that bad. Now, some people, they really hate conflict. They'll do whatever they can to avoid it. They'll run the other direction. They just do not want conflict. I'm going to avoid it at all costs. It's just a difference in personalities. Um, but it's usually our differences, it's conflict, that, that account for our disagreements. Conflict a lot of times leads to um, disagreements, and it can cause a lot of trouble. We have different ideas, different opinions, different perspectives, sometimes even different values. And, and most of us are convinced, believe it or not, that our way is right. Did you know that? <laughs> it's just human nature. Um, you might think differently than me, and that's okay, but you're wrong. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how we are. Even on matters of indifference, it's really hard for us to say, you know what? I don't look at it that way, but it's okay for you to look at it that way. Now, this is really dangerous because you've heard me talk a lot about relativism with doctrine and with big issues. That's why I keep going back to over and over again, remember, we're talking about indifferent matters. We're not talking about doctrine. It's not okay for you to have your own truth, right? But if it's not a right or wrong issue, we ought to be able to get along on it. That's really what Paul's talking about here. So we're not talking about right, wrong, truth, and untruth. You have your truth and I have my truth. But at the same time, uh, there are matters of indifference where those things should be allowed. And, and, but like I said, most of us, we don't like that. We just want everybody to can be convinced our way. 
So we, when we encounter people who don't agree with us, we kind of feel honor-bound to try to convert them to our way of thinking. Guilty, 100% right here, okay? I love a good debate. I love it. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't get angry. I just love a good debate, and I'm going to try to convince you the best I can of my way of thinking, okay? But in the end, what Paul is saying is there's some matters that should be indifferent. So the problem is not, and I think this is really interesting too, the problem in this situation is not that the weak have a different idea or are doing any particular thing. What's the actual problem? The problem is is they're insisting on others doing it like they do it, right? That's really the root of the problem here in this passage. So are we ever going to get to perfect and total unity and agreement? Probably not. Um, And I, I don't think God even designed it to be that way. God designed each one in this church different. You have a different personality, a different way of doing things probably. You know, if we all were to go spend a a week or two in each other's homes, we'd probably be pretty shocked, right? They do things differently. And, you know, that's okay. It's all right that maybe you do things different than another family in the church does, as long as all those things are according to the Word of God. So perfect unity, where we're all just carbon copies of one another, that's not even how the church was designed. You would think if anybody could have had perfect unity, it would have been the early church. So think about this. When this was written, they're only a few years removed from the bodily presence of Jesus Christ on the earth at this time. And already, just read through the Pauline epistles. Just read through them. They have any conflict? They have any problems? They had tons of conflict. And they're only just years removed from Jesus' actual bodily presence on the earth. They still had the apostles who had spent time with Jesus himself, and they had authority to teach. They didn't have the scriptures, but the apostles. And yet, what do we find in the church? We find conflict. So, of all people, they should have had unity and been together, and yet we find the more we read, the one thing that just really leaps off the pages of the New Testament, and the epistles especially, is that the people in the early church, they had differences, and their differences often led to conflict. So we don't have a big problem with the differences between Jews and Gentiles in our churches today, right? We don't have that. But we've got issues. We've got things that come up. And, and if it's not a matter that the Scripture clearly defines as right or wrong, if it's not, and that's the difficulty is deciding which one of those things is which, but then we ought to have some grace and some liberty in those matters. And that between churches as well. Let me just throw that in there too. Um, that's something that is even maybe a bigger issue. But we have people who, we understand this, we have people who are quite narrow in what they believe is is proper conduct for Christians, and we have people who might have a broader view of that, and those differences sometimes lead to conflict. So what Paul is actually getting at here is how do we deal with those things? So before I get into those three specifics, this is the longest point, so nobody nobody panic. Um, This is really the meat of this message. So before I get into those three specific things that he says, which is bearing with them, pleasing them, and then edifying or building them up, there's a concept that I think applies to this so well that I'm kind of in some ways reading it into the Scripture, but I think it fits so well. I think you'll see where I'm headed with this. So when we begin to talk about how the strong should interact with the weak, uh, I want us to talk about a concept that's, that's a lot of times it's really misunderstood, and it's meekness. The concept of meekness. What does that mean? What does the word meekness mean? Well, today, if I said, man, he's really a meek man, what what would be the first thing you thought of? 
Well, you may not even want to admit it, but probably the first thing your mind thought of was weakness. Well, if he's a meek person, that means he's the quiet guy that, you know, he kind of stands off by himself and he just kind of looks like he doesn't say much to anybody. You know, he's just kind of quiet guy, real humble, you know, doesn't really have any opinions. That is not the biblical understanding of what meekness is. Um, did you know that Jesus described himself only in two words? I am meek and I'm lowly. That's, that, that means this concept is really, really important. I am meek and I'm lowly. So what, what does meekness mean? If it's not weakness, what does it mean? Well, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Matthew 21, 5 says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek. And I'm not going to finish the verse, but he's coming meek. Well, what does that mean? Well, the easiest way for me to describe it to you is that it is not weakness at all. It is actually strength. So uh, a good analogy that I heard about this is it's kind of like a sword that is left in the sheath. So there's power, but I'm choosing not to use it. So when Christ was on the cross, I think this is the greatest example of meekness that there ever was. When Christ was on the cross, he could have done what? He could have called down legions of angels, wiped out everybody in that whole area, completely destroyed the Roman Empire. He could have done that. He had the power to do that. And he chose not to use it. He chose not to use it. He left the sword in the sheath. The other example to me, I guess because of the sword analogy, I thought about what he told Peter. You remember Peter, uh, when they came to arrest Christ, and you know Peter, he's going to save the day, and he pulls the sword, he chops the guy's ears off. What did, what did Jesus say? He said, you put the sword back in the sheath. That's not, that's not what we're doing. That's not how we're going to operate. We're going to operate with meekness. The sword is going to go back in the sheath. Peter, you might have the power to overcome these people, but we're not going to use it. You're going to put the sword back in the sheath, and, and we're going to be more focused on what God's will is in this situation. So I want to read you a little definition of it. The word meekness and its use in Scripture has a fuller and deeper significance than non-scriptural Greek writings. It consists not in a person's outward behavior only, not in, uh, nor yet in his relations to fellow men, as little in his mere natural disposition. Rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul, and the exercise of it are first and chiefly towards God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing or resisting. It is closely linked with uh, the word humility, follows directly upon it but it is not only the humble heart which is in the meek which as such does not fight god and more or less struggle and contend with him this meekness however being first of all a meekness before god is also such in the face of men even of evil men out of a sense that these with the insults and injuries which they may inflict are permitted by him for the chastening and purifying of his elect it is greatly associated with and there's a Greek word that means self-control. So I've heard it described this way. Meekness is power under control. It's controlled. So I, I think that is probably one of the best definitions. It's power under control. The common assumption is, is that when a man is meek, it's because he cannot help himself. Right? Well, if he's meek, it's just because he's a weak person. No. 
A meek person is someone who is very strong, but has that under control. He is self-controlled. The Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command, and yet he did the will of God. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness or self-interest. That's going to be important in our text. Because what, what Paul's really going to tell us here is we're going to have to put other people's interests before ours. And that's what meekness is. I have power over you. I'm right. You're wrong. Or I'm strong. You're weak. And yet, I'm going to put your interest before mine. Even though I could force my way, I'm going to choose not to do it. That is really what meekness is all about. So have you ever been in a position where you clearly had power over another and yet you chose not to exercise it. Um, it doesn't have to be physical power either. What about a scenario where you know something that they don't know? Um, that's Knowledge is power, folks. What if you know something, and you could just destroy a person with it, but I'm going to choose not to use it because that's not for your good. That would be me coming after you. But I'm going to put your interest before mine, and, and I'm, I'm not going to use that against you. That is meekness, and that's what meekness is really all about. So, jump into these three things. He says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. I like, I actually like the NKJV. Some of you, I think, in here use that. I actually like that a little better than I do the KJV. It says, We then that are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, scruples, it's funny that that's in the New King James because when was the last time you used scruples in conversational English? You know, you probably did. Scruples just means I have kind of some reservations about something. I'm, I'm not real sure about it. I, so I have some scruples. I have some, something that, you know, tells me I don't want to do that. Um, reservation is a good word. So, I, you know, that's what a scruple is. Well, that's really what we're talking about in the text. I think it's a, a good translation. So we that are strong ought to bear with the infirmities or the scruples of the weak not to please ourselves. So what does it mean to bear with how are we going to deal with that difference well the strong need to bear the scruples of the weak not just put up with them grudgingly but lovingly undergird them carry them support them and sustain them not flaunting our liberty in front of them and not doing anything that would encourage them to sin as paul has already taught us in chapter 14 we're to be more concerned with other people's spiritual well-being than our own comforts and pleasure and, and doing what we want to do. That's what bearing with them means. Now, that doesn't sound fair, right? It just doesn't sound fair. So I have to regulate my conduct because of somebody else's weakness. In case you haven't figured it out yet, that's what Paul's asking you to do if you're strong in the faith. Regulate your conduct based on somebody else's weakness. That is, that's difficult. And we say, well, that's not fair. What kind of justice is that? But I'm going to tell you something. When your life is controlled fully by the love of Christ and by the Holy Spirit that was, is within you and you really understand the gospel and you really understand what it is that Christ has done for you, that spirit of unselfishness is going to leave. We're going to tie this to the gospel at the end. You'll see because Christ is our example in this. So we will, what we do is we teach them the great truths of their liberty in Jesus Christ we don't just confirm them in their weakness. We teach them, but until they learn it, we support them and we bear with them and we don't mistreat them. And we even go out of our way not to offend them during that time. Now, that's, that's difficult. Now, there's a second thing. It ties almost directly in with bearing. He says we're to please 
one another. Not to please ourselves, verse 2, verse 1 ends, and not to please ourselves, verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So we're to please our neighbor more than we are to please ourselves. Pleasing others rather than myself doesn't mean that I can never do what I want to do. Isn't that good news? So Paul doesn't say that because there's weak members, you can never enjoy your liberty in Christ. It's not what he says at all. He just says we can't throw a stumbling block in their way. So this is a really bad example. I'm going to go ahead and get that out of the way on the front end. I'm just going to try to illustrate it the best that I can. Okay, let's say that somebody in here has the horrible scruple that they believe it's wrong to eat bacon. Okay, that person, that's terrible, right? I mean, you can't eat bacon. There's something wrong with you. Okay, but let's say that's their scruple. Well, Paul says, I'm not saying that you can never eat bacon. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you shouldn't walk up in the middle of the church with a plate piled high with bacon and just start chowing down right in front of that person. Like, see my liberty? You see it? Let me rub it in your face a little bit more. This tastes really good, by the way. It's excellent. That's, that's kind of a really crude way to give an example of what Paul is saying here in this passage. So it's not that we can't ever do what we want to do. It's that we really pay attention to those around us and we make sure we're not being a stumbling block to them. We put their interest before our own interests. So uh, when we do that, uh, when we decide to put their interest before ours, we could also fall into the trap of that we're going to make everybody happy. So we're just going to do everything that we do, and, and we're just going to, you know, we're going to make sure that everybody in the whole church is happy, and that that's my whole, you know, mission in life is to make everybody happy. Did you know that's not ever going to happen? <laughs> that's just not going to happen. You're not ever going to make everybody happy. So while at the same time it doesn't mean that I can't ever do what I want, it also means we're not always going to make everybody happy. Um, sometimes that's just not possible. I'll share with you this fable about there was an old man and he was traveling with a child and a donkey. It's an old man, child, and a donkey. And as they passed through the first village they came to, the man was leading the donkey, and the child was walking behind. And the townspeople looked at the old man, and they said, What kind of a man are you? You're leading this donkey, and you're letting the child walk behind, and you're a fool. You should be riding the donkey. So he gets on. He climbs on the donkey. They start to the next village. And the child's still walking behind him. So they get to the next village, and what do you think that village said? They said, man, what kind of a man are you? You're riding the donkey, and you're letting this poor little child walk behind you. So he got off, put the child on the donkey. He starts to the next village. He gets to that village. He's probably thinking, they can't come up with anything this time. Well, he comes into town, the next village, and they say, man, are you just dumb or ignorant or something? That donkey's strong enough. He can handle both of y'all. Why don't you just get on the donkey with the child? So he's, okay. So he gets on the donkey. He starts to the next town. He gets there. What do you think they said in the next town? What kind of a man are you? You're abusing this poor donkey, riding both of you. You know, one, at least one of y'all should walk. And the last time somebody saw him, he was headed to the next town carrying the donkey. <laughs> right? That's just a, a silly story that shows you're not ever going to make people happy. You know, you can... Paul is not even saying that you should just try to make everybody happy. That's not the point. It's that we don't flaunt our liberty and make it a stumbling block for someone else whenever possible. Whenever that's possible, we need to make choices and do things in such a way that it doesn't offend our brothers and sisters. We put their interests before ours. We please others before we please ourselves. I think it's, it's really 
uh, goes well with our athletics programs this year at TCPS. They adopted a motto just for our athletics programs that says, I am third. And that sounds kind of weird. You know, most time people are saying we're number one, right? We're number one. We're not. Well, ours is we are third. And the reason why is because Christ comes first, others come second, and then me. So I'm, we're going to put Christ first, then we're going to think about others, and then we're going to uh, worry about ourselves. So I think that's, that's really what Paul is shooting at here uh, in this passage. Now, the last one, the last one he says is building up, edifying. So we're to, after he says, please our neighbor for his good, to edification. So really what that tells is the purpose. The reason we do this is so that we're building up and not tearing down. Okay, you flaunt your liberty in front of other people, then you're tearing down. You know, you're going to drive people away. Let me re-say that. I think it's really important for our churches today. And listen to this. If you, on matters of indifference, make it a matter that's not a matter of indifference, it will drive people away. It will not build up. It will tear down. It will tear their spirit down. It will tear them down. You might even be right on your matter of indifference uh, in your mind, but it will, it will tear. We are to be building up. We are to uh, carry ourselves in a way that even if we have differences on things that are indifferent, that we should be building up and not tearing down. What we do affects the others in our circle of fellowship. We need to always remember that. And so we're to look out for their good and build them up and strengthen them in the faith weigh every decision even ones of christian liberty by this very high standard how will this affect my brothers and sisters will it build them up or will it tear them down will it bring closer unity or will it bring needless division and unrest now i'm I'm willing to tell you this morning that is a high standard it is a high standard that everything that we do we need to you know, no matter what it is, even if it's a matter of Christian liberty, there needs to be a thought in our mind, how is this going to affect my brothers and sisters in Christ? Investing in that way has a cost. There will be things that are lawful things that you might have to give up at least temporarily to minister in this way. Okay? That's the tough part. I'm just being honest about it. That's the hard part. If you're going to minister to people in this way, there may be things that are perfectly okay, that are perfectly lawful according to scriptures that you have to give up temporarily in order to minister to someone in this way. Remember on a Wednesday night, we talked about life-on-life discipleship. But it's, it's costly, but it bears much fruit. That's really what Paul's talking about here. And, and that's what we want to see in our fellowship. In Ephesians 4... In Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16, well, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You're very familiar with the text. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to build it up. We are to be using our gifts and the faith that's been given to us, especially if you are considered strong in the faith, to build others up and then he reiterates that at the end of that passage in verse 16 from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love we're to be building one another up using all that god has given to build each other up 
And like we've already said, the way that we get to that is by learning more about the Word of God. Now, as we begin to close, we have a great example in this. So you say, well, that's a big ask. You know, that's, that's a big ask to say that we've got to put some things aside and we've got to actually not please ourselves and we've got to set aside something that's lawful just because these people have scruples. And, I, you know, I just don't know about that. I don't know if that's right or fair. Well, let's see what our great example in verse 3. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. So the, the example of this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 15.3. Paul is quoting a psalm here about the Messiah, Psalm 69.9, predicting that those who were opposed to God and what God was doing would, would take it out on him. That's exactly what they did. They made false accusations against him throughout his whole life. When he hung on the cross, they shouted blasphemous abuse at him. For even Christ pleased not himself. He sought not his own ease, pleasure, profit, honor, and glory, but to do his Father's will and work. He came not to be ministered to, to be attended upon as an earthly prince, enjoying his own ease and pleasure, things grateful to nature, but to minister to others. He appeared in the form of a servant, did the work of one in his life, and at last became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So you go to Philippians chapter 2 and look at that Christology. How does that Christology start out? It starts out that Christ took upon himself the form of a servant. Even though it was not robbery for him to be equal with God, yet he took upon him the form of a servant. Just think about that and then apply that to what we're talking about this morning. So what's being asked of me? What's being asked of me by Paul in Romans chapter 15 is that I temporarily put aside some things that are lawful for the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at what Christ was willing to set aside for you and I, our great example. If you think of it in that way, it becomes not quite so big an ask, right? Uh, really, when we think about it, that's, that's not a big ask. Um, when, when our example was willing to put so much aside for the good of his people, that put our, our good before his temporary good. Um, the reproaches that are talked about there, I really think, you know, that can be seen. John Gill says that could be meant the sins of the people, and I think that's very true. This is just the, really the gospel message. So when we bear with our weaker brothers and sisters, it's a real true living out of the gospel. It's a living out of the gospel in our life. And the gospel that's mentioned here, he says in verse 3, For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. My sin was on Christ. He, he took that on himself, and his righteousness was placed on me. Corinthians 5.21, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. We can rejoice that our Savior's strength bore our weakness. 
You see that? That's the simple message of the gospel. Our Savior's strength bore our weakness. And so when he asks of us that we, those who are strong in the faith, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, what an example we have in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the the very simple message of the gospel. And so when we act in this way towards those that are weak, like I said, we are living out the gospel for those who are around us. Ephesians 4.32, we'll close with this. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We have that mindset, then everything that Paul asked of us this morning becomes pretty simple. That we're putting others before ourselves. When we think about what all has been forgiven for us, we're able to be more forgiving and more understanding of others who might be weak in the faith. So just to kind of put a practical summation on this, you know, I would hope that at, at some time we might have a new family come to this church. And they might be weak in the faith. Did you know that? <laughs> they might come in and they might not have been raised in the church their whole life like a lot of us were in this church. And they may not understand everything there is to know that the Bible teaches. But I hope that we'll treat them in the right way. That we would be understanding. That we would bear with them. That we would please them before ourselves. And that we would edify them, build them up in the faith, and not ever try to just come at them in a way that would drive them away. We need to have that spirit that Christ had and that we hear about there in Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, because we remember that God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. hope those things have been a blessing to you this morning. May God all give us opportunities to bear with the weak.